Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, a global leader in recruiting and legal consulting. My name is Mark Yacono. I'm your host. I'm a managing director in our MLA Transform Advisory Services practice. I am delighted to have two repeat guests, but never two repeat guests together. This is the first time I've had repeaters who have been um, on the same podcast. Mike Kasdan is a partner at Wigan and Dana. He is a fierce advocate for mental health. He is a fierce advocate for helping redefine uh, modern notions of masculinity and calling out unconstructive concepts of what masculinity means and how it interacts with mental health. Gina Passarella is one of my favorite guests of all time. She's the editor-in-chief of ALM Media. And um, if, if, if one person has been a pivotal force in, in, refo- in focusing on the mental health crisis in the legal profession, it's Gina and, and ALM Media when they started a year-long uh, a year-long initiative to cover these issues. We're here to talk about uh, their latest survey on the state of mental health in the legal profession. I think, Gina, this is the third one. It is, yes. Yes, and I'm, uh, this, this one is intriguing, audience, because 2019 established sort of the baseline 2020 showed some, some trends, but that was when we were in the midst of the pandemic. In 2021, we are really, you know, in a pandemic slash endemic, and um, the the survey seems to show some some variability based on the fact that we're no longer in the most acute phase of the pandemic. So, Gina, I'm going to ask you to um, kind of describe what the approach to the survey was. I know you made some changes in focus based on some of the change circumstances in which we worked. And if you can kind of set up, you know, sort of the, the architecture of the survey and the intent, that would be great. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having us on. And let's just, you, you were so kind in your introductions of us, but let's not uh, forget all of the great work that you do in this space, Mark. And, and we are so appreciative of it and appreciative of you giving us this platform to, to continue the discussion. Um, so yes, the survey is in its third iteration. So we actually, we did it first in 2019 and we didn't do it again until 2021. We thought we'd do it every other year. And then we realized that's ridiculous. We need to be tracking this. The world's changing so quickly. So we did it in 2021 and then we put it out in the field again in March and April of this year. And, um, the idea all along has been, it's focused on law firms and we have visions of expanding that to other sectors of the legal community and will, but it's focused on anybody who works in any law firm anywhere in the world. So staff, associates, partners, um, any size firm, any location. And we just really wanted to get a sense of both what is it like for you personally in your organization in this industry, what do you perceive the industry and your organization and others to be grappling with? How do you personally handle it? How does your organization handle it? All meant to give both individuals and organizations, hopefully a bit of a roadmap in looking at these these findings to say, okay, these are the areas where at least we can control as, as a company, I can create this structure or as an individual, I can look out for X or, or focus on why for me. So um, really trying to use this information to give people a roadmap for moving forward. And we did add some new questions. We added some COVID related questions in 21. And then this year we, on top of that, now added some questions around remote and hybrid work, which is a bit of a double-edged sword around the mental health sector, particularly. Yeah, my takeaway was that there was a lot of mixed messaging coming across in the, in the survey results um, because because the environment is changing and it's almost as if if you took a straw poll, there are a lot of 50-50s on what was positive and negative, which which was fascinating. Yeah, no, it, it, well, it's interesting because at first I'm, I'm looking at the results and thinking, oh, there's actually some improvement here. This is, this is good, you know, it's not massive, but there are some several percentage point 
improvements in, in some of the key questions around, you know, are you suffering from X or do you feel we're at a crisis here? And uh, But then you look and you compare 2022 to 2019 and you realize, no, it's just kind of that baseline. I think we saw a spike in 2020. Um, and now that people are either feeling like there's a light at the end of, at the end of the tunnel on the pandemic or they just got used to it, I don't know which, um, there, things are starting to even out again. Um, because when you look at questions like, um, did you, for those of you who suffered from, say, anxiety or depression prior to the pandemic, or, or, or say that you suffer from it now, did you prior to the pandemic? 86% of respondents said, yes, I suffered from it prior to the pandemic. 55 said yes about depression. So these are issues that existed well before COVID came into play, and they will continue to exist even if the, you know, the COVID anxieties were laid on top of that ease. So I think that's really important for particularly organizations to remember that this isn't just a, we had to deal with this for a couple of years and now it's getting better. We need to keep focusing our efforts on this. That, that is a great sort of setup for, for the conversation and certainly a great setup for explaining the scope and span of the survey. Mike, what's your takeaway? To me, it seemed like despite a lot of the efforts of many, many people and many, many organizations to illuminate the crisis, we haven't made progress in, in, in many material ways. We have in some. Um. So I guess my takeaway isn't that pessimistic, but also want to be realistic about it. Um, I wanted to piggyback off the last thing that Gina said, because I think it's really important. And, you know, if the pandemic and the silver lining of the pandemic is that organizations now see into people's homes and lives and better connect, uh, you know, home problems or life problems with, with work issues, and maybe start to understand the, the value of addressing them um, as, as a business issue. I think that's great. Um, but, you know, if we look historically from, you know, prior surveys, you know, before ALM even started looking at this, I mean, it's very clear that this is an industry that has, you know, uh, you know, is one of the the, the higher ups on the list that you don't want to be high up on, right? Of, of sort of industries that have, uh, you know, high incidence of, of depression and anxiety and burnout. Um, and that, that's been happening a long time. And I, so I think with that backdrop, I think, you know, it's important to realize that this is just the beginning of a conversation. And, you know, I think the, the three of us care a lot about this space and we're talking with people in the space uh, and that can be exciting and good, but um, this is an institutional issue and like these institutional issues aren't things that are solved overnight or, or, or even year to year where you change a policy or do a thing and then, you know, immediately you see drastic, drastic improvement. And this is just also, it's, this is just, you know, being human, like people are going to struggle in places and we're going to try and do the best we can. And, and I think changes are going to be incremental. I think, you know, one thing, one perspective that I have is that you know I've been writing and talking and thinking about mental health um, for you know over ten years, but wasn't doing it in this industry or in a sort of public way in this industry, uh, which is interesting uh, in and of itself. But um, you know, so ten years ago, I was you know writing and working with a company called Stigma Fighters and helping people share their stories and sharing bits of my own story. Uh, and, and I remember the reaction of saying, oh, this is great. You know, we're, we're destigmatizing it, you know, we're winning. Um, and then it, what was interesting to me is, um, you know, 10 years later, uh, we're having that same conversation. So the it, and now I'm having it with like my lawyer friends who are saying, oh, this is great. Like we're destigmatizing we're destigmatizing it. And I think it's important to remember that that's all that means is that we're like talking about it. Um, that's the very, very first step. And so I don't think it's surprising to me that we haven't made huge progress because first you talk about it and then it's like talking about the problem, right? And then like talking about the solutions and implementing things that, you know, should have impact uh, slowly to change things. And I think we're, we're at the talking about it place right now. Well, I just, can I, Mark, I'm so sure. sorry. I just want to jump in on what Mike said because he's so, he's, he mentioned that to me before and I love that he said that. He said, it's so important. I mean, yes, that this is just the beginning, destigmatizing. And we do see some evidence in the survey that 
we're making progress there, right? People feel more comfortable talking about these issues in their workplace. They feel slightly more comfortable in taking advantage of some of the programs that are offered, or at least more aware of them, though not fully. But I, I mean, there's no doubt though, this is a societal issue, right? It's to Mike's point, it's a human issue. So the workplace is not going to solve everything. And I think sometimes that might get in the way of like, where, where, where is our place in this? But you can solve for the work environment and for people to feel comfortable utilizing the services that you do provide, regardless of whether the issue that requires those services is work created or not. So for me, what I really wanna to start to see is people who are comfortable taking leave to take care of their mental health and don't feel like that's gonna throw them off the track. Um, things like that, I think, is where we really need to head. They may have even laid the foundation for the programming. Now we need to get people to use it. And that comes from leadership making you feel safe to do so. That, that, is, that is a very good point. And I did observe in the survey that more respondents feel that their firms are providing more resources, which is very positive. It was interesting to me, and I, I, I like your take on it, that a lot of employees didn't know necessarily that all of their firms had EAPs that had components of mental health resources. That was a fascinating statistic because there was a stark percentage deviation from the firms that had it and the number of employees that knew that they had it. And that is just something that I know drives the, the mental health professionals to such frustration because like, what else can we do to communicate this? It's not like we don't have the programs. It's not like we're not talking about them. We really are trying. Where is the message gap? And, and I don't know that I have the answer to that. But Mike, you might. Um, I, I don't know that I have the answer to it, but um, I think it gets back to what you said about, uh, you know, leadership and it being a human issue. So it's one thing, you know, I think one sort of businessy reaction to it could be, oh, our messaging isn't good, we should message it better and people aren't aware and that's sort of like an advertising failure and maybe in some senses it is, but I think it's more interesting that, you know, for example, like like I started my career at a really big law firm, right? And uh, did I know what their vacation policy was? No. Um, because it didn't really matter because I wasn't going to take vacation unless, you know, it, it didn't matter how many weeks I got, two weeks, three weeks, one week, no weeks. Um, it, it didn't matter because that wasn't something that was possible for me, uh, you know, as a matter, you know, according to myself and according to the culture. So that that's where I think it comes down to leadership. And when we say this, I think it's, 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 it's what gives me hope is that it's like other issues that we have navigated. It's like talking about parental leave, right, which we used to call maternity leave. And now, you know, I see men like starting to take that leave. And I think it's important as a leader when that happens to say, hey, I think it's great that you're taking leave. Like, how's the baby? Um, instead of, you know, being upset that you've lost this person for two weeks. And I think it's important to be public about that. And I think in the same way, and I've seen leaders do this. Um, in, you know, in my own firm, which is awesome. I've seen partners come into meetings and say, hey, um, sorry I was late. I just had my hour of therapy session. And you know, that's, that's an hour of my time that I take. And I think saying that very intentionally to associates says like, you know, it gives permission. So I think a lot of it is leadership and we're all getting more comfortable with it. Um, it is, people are at different points at how they feel and care about this. Um, it's certainly, an issue that we're not used to talking about in, in the classroom or, um, and I think that's a really, I'm sorry, in the classroom, I was thinking about teaching at NYU, which I'll mention, um, but you know, we're not, we're not used to talking about it. And I think that is something that has to be addressed with leaders. I mentioned the classroom because um, one of the things I'm doing with Lawyering Well Human is also going to law schools and talking to law students. And I thought, hey, you know, this is really important for law students. Um, what I came to realize also in talking with some of the deans um, that I've spoken with at law schools is they're professors. They're, they're like, we have professors, we have students that want to talk about this. We're supposed to be talking about this now. And the professors really have no idea what to do. Like, are we yeah. supposed to talk about people's personal lives? What if someone says there's a problem? How do you navigate this? And I think that's a real issue for leadership, uh, you know, that, that has to be navigated. I agree with you, but I think there are some interesting juxtapositions and that's that 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 concept in some of the things we saw in the survey one was which it struck me that there were 
there was a percentage of people who didn't feel they had a problem, but were diagnosticians and felt that they knew plenty of others who had a problem. The other thing was, and, and I think this was called out in the analysis, and it goes to the issue of stigma, the, the sort of more comfort saying you suffer from anxiety, which can be attributed to maybe how hard and you worked and everything else, than depression. Those two things sort of, and the mess, in, in your comments about messaging, it kind of is naughty for lack of a more elegant term. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And I'll, I'll let Gina jump in too, but um, I do think that that's really interesting and important to think about. Um, you know, first of all, the, there, there are a couple of different approaches to thinking about this issue. Um, and I try and kind of use both of them. Um, but, you know, some people, when they think about mental health, or a lot of people, I should say, when they think about mental health, think about mentally ill health, right? Like a clinical problem, like, and they say, you know, one in five, or, you know, in our industry, according to surveys, worse than that. But, you know, one in whatever um, suffer from this clinically diagnosed, you know, severe issue, right? Clinical depression or clinical anxiety or PTSD, something that's been diagnosed and might be very acute. Um, and you know, some people look at that, um, and this is, was a learning for me, um, but some people look at that and say, but that, that itself creates stigma because who wants to be the one in four or the one in five? And the reality is that when we're talking about mental health, we're really talking about kind of all of us on this spectrum, whether it's clinical or whether you'd call it, hey, I'm just super stressed, it can still lead to a lot of problems you know, in life and at work. And so you know, the other approach is to say like, we all have mental health, we're all somewhere on this continuum, you know, there are tails to the bell curve, but in the middle, you know, we're also, you know, things happen. We have to be able to navigate stress. We have to be able to navigate when something horrible happens in our life and we still have to show up in our day and, and get things done. So, so I think, uh, like, you're right, you know, not everyone can self-diagnose, you know, am I depressed? Am I, am I, am I clinically anxious? Um, and on a certain level, I'm not sure it matters. And I think it might actually be a better approach to just talk about this mental health as like something that we all have, um, you know, kind of like we do physical health. And sometimes, you know, we break our foot and sometimes our ankle's a little tender. And, you know, some days, you know, we wake up and our back hurts. But um, I think that it's hard to think about it. But I do think about that with stigma. I never really thought about it before. Uh, I had a conversation with someone who's, who does a lot of work in this space. And he was saying, you know, that whole one, it was an advertisement during, I think, mental health month, you know, mental health awareness month. And it was kind of a thing that said, you know, one in five people suffer. And he was saying, that's terrible messaging because um, that actually increases stigma. So, so yes, it, it, it's complicated. I it think that's such an interesting, I'm so sorry, Mark. That's oh, it's brilliant how you put that, Mike. And it, it gives, I mean, there's no doubt that the skills required to help someone who is in one bucket versus another may be different. And I think firms and, and the rest of us should be kind of educated on what that is. But when you do look at it as a continuum, yes, it reduces the stigma. It means we're all in it together, but it also gives more opportunity, frankly, for the organization to step in and, and do some meaningful things for everybody on that continuum, right? You're not just looking to prevent the worst, which we are, but you're you're looking to create a space that both doesn't exacerbate or add stressors that just are unnecessary, and also allows people to deal with or talk about or somehow get help for just any general life stressor wherever they are in that continuum. And of course, your position on the continuum can change, right? I mean, it's it, it's it can, it's fluid, so. Just really, I, I love what Mike said there. I think that's really important. Yeah, and it strikes me that you're talking about reframing it. So you're migrating from a view of mental health, getting help for mental health as a triage issue, as opposed to incorporating ways to enhance mental health as sort of a preventative you know, medicine approach or a, you know, a well-being approach and in more, more of a sort of the normal course of what we do to stay healthy versus everybody's in crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think that is it. And, and I recognize, you know, it's, it's a little different and uncomfortable. And I see headlines, like I think the New York Times had a headline was, you know, is your happiness your employer's responsibility? And, you know, those types of lines are weird and uncomfortable, but 
I do. I, I think there is a lot to be gained by framing it. And when I say framing it, I'm not saying just you know messaging, but really thinking about it um, as sort of a positive mental health issue. Like I, I think about. I mean, I'm sure it's true of most jobs. This is the one I know the most, but we are service providers, and what we provide is like our brains, our brains, the ability to think creatively and write and advocate and, you know, write briefs and great and be creative in transactions and whatever it is we do, we're creative problem solvers. So, you know, I think a lot about the business case for doing this. And I think about the resistance of, you know, should we spend money, you know, doing this and giving someone a gym membership or giving someone, you know, therapy and, you know, where's the line? Um, but I think, you know, when, when I think about it, and, and I think there, there are a lot of costs that are interesting to think about from the business case perspective, but I think if we're thinking about like workplace and business, I think it's very natural to think about it as, you know, don't we want to create an environment where people are functioning most optimally in their brains? Um, and I think that's, that's a very, I mean, it just makes sense to me. Yeah, and, and I think, and in fact, this ties kind of back to a podcast I did recently with Andy Little about burnout, which is, and it ties to the work I do mostly with legal departments, that organizational design at its core is about creating an environment where people can thrive and deliver great service using the right tools, the right technologies, creating the right resources for them to grow, advance, and stay healthy. It's no longer really a siloed discussion about what, an, what a good work environment looks like. There's like this cosmic interconnection between what we can do to enable people to work better, what we can do to help them have the tools to cope better, how we can allocate workload allocations so that people are fair. And I think, Gina, one of your reporters, I believe it was one of your reporters, just did a story on um, workload allocations at Brian Cave. Pilsner, I, I, yeah. I grew up thinking it was Brian Cave, so I may have gotten the name. But, you know, that whole notion that workload allocation not only uses resources better, but I think one of the things it might do is avoid burnout and depression by disenfranchisement, because you're not getting your share of work that you're capable of doing. It's, it, I totally agree. Yes. And that, that article got a tremendous amount of interest. It shows that people are really looking at how are we assigning matters. And I think it's both for disenfranchisement purposes, as well as just your classic burnout, because what the survey showed that I thought was so interesting, there are two really big issues that strike me as some of the biggest causes from the profession of a lot of the stress and anxiety we see. And one has existed from the start, which is the feeling that like I cannot untether from this and I can there's no time to let go to walk away to take that vacation the Mike's point or let take a day or an hour, you know, let alone a vacation. Um, always on call. And then more recently what's been developing and growing and it was very stark in this year's survey was the lean staffing and lean to yeah, lack of resources, right? The talent. And, and I, I, that just really strikes me. And I mean, I know we were in the midst of this talent war and everybody was losing people and gaining people and they probably never felt like they had teams, but it also goes to, you know, that existed before we were in the talent war. So I don't want to give firms a total pass on that. Right. I mean, you, this is a profitability question. You could staff your teams differently and, and yeah, maybe you don't make as much profits, but you have people who are operating on a more optimal level. You have more touch points to the client because more lawyers now know who they are and are working on their matters. It just seems like a smart thing to do for a number of reasons. And I, I think those are two areas that firms really need to figure out. Um, and that when we talk about, you know, to Mike's point, like it is, is it the employer's job to make, you know, for, for an individual's happiness? I would maybe controversially say, no, not at all. But do you have to make it worse? No. And are there things that you're doing that might be and it's unnecessary that aren't really helping your business either because to Mike's point, you're in a talent business? Um, yeah, so. Yeah, and your la in, in one of your last points really fascinates me because you, you, you've released the M100 and the M200 surveys and we know what the operating metrics for firms are, revenue per lawyer, profits per partner, and partner compensation is, is, is a function of how well your revenue delivers um, to people's bank accounts. But one of the things that we don't look at as a hidden cost, which could arguably affect those metrics is the cost of attrition and burnout because, because there's no nifty financial metric that you can pull from your system 
that 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 weighs that. So um, the staffing issues and, and the resourcing issues are, are fascinating because to cure them and to potentially have a better better teams, more effective teams, less attrition might operate might impact the metrics that they live and die and and revere. That it just the timing of all of this kind of kind of struck yes. me. Yeah, no, I mean, for, you know, any business needs to make decisions, just like businesses are, are thinking a lot more these days about what their positions are on various social issues and other. I mean, you're just not operating in a financial silo anymore. No organization is. But I mean, it, it shouldn't really be, you know, I have to do good by my folks mental health because somebody's watching or, you know, it, it just it, it makes sense for the business. It you know, and, and it's, you raised some really interesting points. And Patrick Fuller, my colleague on, on our intelligence team, is really looking into some data, particularly around lateral hiring attrition and the like, that I think we could easily overlay with some of the mental health metrics. So he and I are going to get together after this. Now you've given us a charge for next year. I like it. Well, it's fascinating. And I also have another um, thing that just hit me in the head um, a couple of weeks ago when I was in Las Vegas for clock. And that's this huge population of legal professionals who sit outside the law firm ecosystem, but who operate under equally lean environments, often with suboptimal circumstances in terms of authority, empowerment, decision-making capability. And I look forward to the day when you're able to sort of broaden the survey to even catch a bigger population of legal professionals so that we can trick may kill me, but I will promise <laughs> that for next year. So I'll know we'll we'll fill him in on our promise after this call. <laughs> nice. I so, just think it's <laughs> I, I just think it's so critical. One of the things I wanted to touch on is there were some demographic shifts in the response respondents. And, and Gina, could you touch on that a little bit? It's interesting to me. Yes. So and let me, I'm just going to pull up the data right in front of me while we talk. I mean, we, it, it wasn't huge um, shifts. We, we saw an equal number of female to male breakdown, and we've always had more women uh, responding to the survey than men, about 51, 52% to 47. Um, that's stayed about the same. The age range did change a bit. So we had fewer folks fill out the survey this year who were in that 25 to 34 age range. And, you know, those are folks who are really in the thick of it, who we often find are struggling the most with some mental health things. So could that attribute, it went from about 38% to 27%. So that's a, a big shift. Um, and I think trying to figure out where we saw, where the bump came. So we got a little bit more in the 45 to 54 range and the 55 to 64 range. We haven't broken out the data yet by associate non-equity and equity, we're doing that now. And that is always a really interesting tell. I mean, and it's right. not surprising equity partners are feeling better. Usually younger associates are not. So that could have accounted for some of the shift in what we saw in these numbers in terms of the improvement. There's no doubt about that. And I think once we cut and slice the data, we'll, we'll have a better answer to that. Yeah, it'll be really interesting too, because you know, going back to the Hazleton study, you, you know, that was an awakening for me because when I originally um, uh, started looking at this issue, my perception was old guys like Kasdan and me were at the most risk. <laughs> and it turned out that it was that, that younger set of lawyers of 10 years and less. And this year, you know, that was a pretty significant um, um, delta between associates in the demographic group um, who, who responded and who didn't in comparison to folks like Kasdan and me. Well, and I just, you raise a point, and I know Mike can talk about this more than I can because he's written on this issue, particularly of men and mental health, but just in the Philadelphia legal industry where I grew up, um, there, we lost in the last two months two senior-ish senior um, men in the profession to suicide. And, you know, it's devastating because we're doing all this work, we're talking about it, and, and there's so much more around it, and you can't always stop the worst from happening. But I think both of those stories, every, you know, the, the, the first thing out of people's mouths is, oh, I would never have expected it from X. Correct. You know, that's the last person I would have thought, why? And so 
I think it is so important to recognize your point, right? It's not just the younger associates. And, and even if you have it easier as an equity partner, your life might not be easier. You might have other issues that are happening. You have different types of pressures and just your general, you know, surroundings and makeup different than somebody else. So I think we need to be on the lookout for these issues. Yeah. And I, and I'm hoping that that, that shift in demographic will even illuminate more acutely some problems we really haven't thought through because both of those deaths were, I think, a shock to their communities, to their families and their friends, but not necessarily outliers in the likelihood that people in that demographic could do that. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, before I comment on that, I hope that when you say old guys like Kasdan, you're talking about my dad, um, but I'm getting the feeling that you're probably not. So That's because I'm lonely getting the coupons I get in the mail based on my age. <laughs> I'm lumping you in because I feel- I'm getting, I'm getting AARP emails too, so, you know. The All right, good to know. But, good uh, to know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different ways we could go and, you know, we could talk about the issue with with men and, you know, I know, you know, Mark, uh, we, we spoke on the earlier podcast about that issue, you know, in great depth and, you know, men are, you know, leading in, you know, the rates at which they succeed in, in, in uh, dying by suicide and, and also, you know, right now in the news, we're seeing you know, mass violence and guns and, uh, you know, the, the, if you look at who the shooters are, it's, it's very, 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 very rarely a woman. Um, and I've been looking at those issues with the Good Men Project and writing about those issues and how they intersect for a long time. And I think one of the areas that they do, uh, you know, that, that these types of, you know, how we, how, how in, in a culture we set out expectations for what the right way is, to be a man um, play out um, is in, you know, additional problems on the mental health side and, uh, and, and pressures and, um, or, or at least maybe I should say, you know, they just manifest in different ways. There are different pressures and they're, they're different sides of the same coin, uh, you know, as between, you know, you know, men and women. And um, it's, but, but I think I want to just jump back for, for a moment because I think the, 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 metrics that you guys were talking about, you know, what we look at and what we can track and what we can divine from that, I think are really important. And that's why I think it's, um, it's such incredible work to have this survey and then to take the time to, you know, slice and dice it and figure out what it means. Um, and I think, you know, that, that's for a couple of reasons, you know, one, you know, in a business space, we're data driven. And if we're going to make decisions, we want data to support you know, what we're doing. Um, and I, but I think also, you know, you talked about some of the costs and, you know, you know, overlaying attrition numbers with mental health numbers. And, and you know, I, I wrote a piece with, with Practical Law, um, you know, recently with, with Jessica Cherry, uh, I, you know, I contributed to that piece um, that really focused on the costs and the business case you know, that, like, what are these costs that, that no one's really writing a lot about? You know, what is the cost of, hey, spending X hundred thousand dollars recruiting someone and X hundred thousand dollars training someone, and then they burn out in a year and they leave and I have to find someone else? Like, those are really big costs. And what are the costs of, you know, absenteeism and not being there? And I think the more data we have on, on those, on, you know, on, on those actual costs, you know, that if that becomes one of the metrics that people look at, then it can drive different decisions and different, and I think, better decisions. I agree well, with also, you. It, I'm sorry. It, it also, having this data doesn't just give us a business case, but it breaks down conventional wisdom, which this industry particularly is just so grained in precedent. This gives us like, you know what, what you thought might not have been. And we all just have to get out of our comfort zone on this topic and, and dive in. Um, and so hopefully it allows people to think about these issues a little differently too. Yeah, and, and I'm hoping at some point that firms and, and not just firms, but legal departments, firms begin to put in place the kinds of data tools to start quantifying the cost of training, to ascribe value to training, to um, you know, measure the cost of, of finding replacements and, 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 and onboarding new folks. Because there is, there, there is data that can be put together. It just needs to be ciphered in, 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 in mind because it's there. We, you know, there are ways to do that. 
And I think it's going to be very interesting when, when, when we measure the cost of an environment where you can't retain folks or they burn out and they have to leave for, for other reasons and you balance it against the metrics that are kind of viewed as the gold standard for whether you th you're thriving as a firm or not. Because I think, you know, to put it in sort of financial terms, I think there's a write-off on the balance sheet that, that we haven't, we haven't, that hasn't been made yet. Yeah, no, that's, I, lo I love the way you say that, right? Or we're just sort of keeping these things off balance sheet. <laughs> uh, that's interesting, yeah. So Gina, let's dig into the to the new stuff a little bit on, on the remote hybrid work, and you know how it's how it's impacted some of some of the results and what the takeaways were. Sure. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. Like I mentioned in the beginning, I mean it's it's a bit of a double edged sword, though. I think overwhelmingly, folks feel like their life has improved because they're working remotely. Um, so that you know, firms can't <laughs> ignore that. Um, you know, does, um, how do you feel that the work environment affected the quality of your life? 57, 59%, excuse me, said it improved it. Um, work product, eh, no impact. <laughs> they were, they were, they were, so, you know, they're saying they were, it improved their productivity, they said, 40, 45%, 46%. Hours work, 53% said they, it upped their hours work from remote. Uh, their home-based personal relationships improved by 62%. And I want to take a minute to decide. So I was talking with a colleague about this the other day. In every survey we have done, I think, um, and I have to go to another part, so 75% or so have said that this industry has negatively affected their personal relationships. That's sad. You know, that's just really sad. And, and that, when, when they're not going right, when your home life isn't going right, nothing else is going right. So, I mean, to, to have an impact on something like that, and maybe I'm just sounding a little too mushy and, and unrealistic, but, you know, 62% of people had an improvement in their home personal relationship. That's what this is, the world's all about. So like that, that needs to be important, right? And, but they were still more productive, right? So it didn't hurt the law firms, theoretically, at least according to the individuals. Um, now it goes, you know, physical health improves, Mental health, when we asked if it improved your mental health, the, the numbers were a little more even. Only 37%, though still good, said it did. 35% um, said it decreased their mental health working from home. So it, Mike, I don't know if you have thoughts on why that might be the case. Yeah, I mean, just really quickly on that. Oh, go ahead, Mark. Before you touch on that, I thought that statistic about improving their home life was fascinating because in the, you know, in, in the blogosphere, over media saturation about you know COVID and its impact. You hear about increasing divorce rates and you know the 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 difficulty of people being at home. Yet in this profession, and I think maybe it's because we've been so absent um, when we're at the office and at work. This is a very contrarian um finding to what at least is being reported out in the broader media i thought that was a fascinating um um uh finding but i think yeah i, I agree but, but i think putting aside what we might read about you know that stuff and just thinking about life like i think just simply being able to know that i can drive three blocks from my house at 645 to make my kids little league game and then go back and take care of some work thing rather than navigating New Jersey transit and upset people and trains and or getting stuck and not being able to make it I think like that alone <laughs> could account for that percentage you know in whole so I think it is it is a big deal what, what I th what I think is interesting about um you know, the, the dual edge to, to, to this that you see, some people say, yeah, it improved my mental health and other people said, uh, actually it made it worse. Uh, and I think it actually goes along with the, um, the feeling that you can't disconnect, which was the highest ranking, uh, you know, sort of problem area, like even above the billable hour. Uh, you know, this year, it was so different a little bit of 72% um, about this always on inability to, to disconnect. I think what the answers um, on mental health reflect, and I mean, this is just me saying it and kind of thinking about my own self anecdotally, 
um, is there are like new issues that we have to navigate, right? So as I think about my life now in, in hybrid and I'm going to the office, you know, two, three days a week, and that's great because I'm seeing people and I'm, you know, able to meet the young people and I'm able to, you know, have lunch with people, have two big monitors, all, all the great things about work. Um, but I'm also, you know, at home and I can, you know, take my car in for an oil change when I need it and run my kid over to do something when it needs to be done. Um, but the things that we're navigating, so, so I think that's, that, that is positive. And I think this is a, an industry where there is like solitary time. There is things where I'm just writing a brief or drafting something or reading something where I can do that from home very, very efficiently and productively. Um, but I think the mental health side, we're navigating new things because with that goes, um, I'm just always on. Like I'm, if you look, you know, I think when the pandemic first started, firms were, I mean, everyone was, what does this mean? Is our business going to go down? And then you look at the hours and the hours are higher than ever because no one's ever off because we're home just on our computers. And, you know, work is like water. Like it's going to fill any vessel it flows into. Right? Always it's always science cracks, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's a bit, so, so it's like, we have to learn different skills, I think, to take advantage of the potential benefits. And one of those is something I've always been really terrible at and I'm trying harder. It's, it's like, it's boundaries, right? And I'm, and I'm like you said, I'm an old guy. Like imagine being like a younger person and having to do those boundaries, you know, when someone like me is asking you to do something. Um, and, and what do we think about that as the person asking and as the person on the other side? But I think, to, I th I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people recognizing, hey, this can be healthier uh, and I can be really efficient but now I have like even less of a boundary between home and work and how do I navigate that? Yeah, and you know what it correlated to, to another finding, which was that 55% focused on lack of sleep, which we all know, whether you have a clinical diagnosis or you have um, some element of mental health issues on that spectrum you talked about, sleep is the greatest medicine on the planet. And so the lack of boundaries and the 55% is the lack of sleep. I really view that as an integrated sort of set of findings. That's a really important thing to connect. I'm glad that you did that. And I hadn't thought of it in that way, but I think you're absolutely right. And another question kind of related to this, the whole burnout discussion is, you know, do you feel that hybrid or remote working environments increase or decrease the likelihood of burnout? 25% said increase, 33% said decrease, 24 said stayed the same. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it's, it's, so it's interesting. That's a mix too. Uh, but I think to your point about setting boundaries, Mike, I feel like, yes, in a law firm structure, it would seem that, you know, the associate would be fearful of no to anything. And, and perhaps they are, you know, not working in a law firm environment. But I also feel like just the younger generation of talent is more, comfortable setting those boundaries than I've ever seen um, in the workplace and just saying, you know, not, not going any farther than they want to. I think, I, think that's, I think that's consistent with some of the surveys that MLA and other organizations have done on millennials in the legal profession is they seem more um, comfortable articulating boundaries than, than some of the other demographics. Yeah. And I think, but I think, you know, we do have to navigate that together. So I think, uh, and, and as, as always, like kind of the extremes and our, maybe our gut reactions, depending on what generation we're from, are probably not serving us very well. So like, for example, there's one perspective, right? When, so when the associate, when you're the partner who for 50 years has been saying, write this brief for me and get it to me tomorrow. And now the person says, oh, I actually have a thing at five o'clock, so I'm not gonna be able to do that for you. That feels like laziness, you know, you know, disrespect. That's not the way I learned to be a good lawyer. You have to work hard to be a good lawyer. Um, and and look, if if someone says, "Hey, I'm always busy," uh, and then you look at their hours and they're not, and you know, you're very busy, you know, that's that's not a good thing. That's something you have to navigate. On the flip side, you know, but I don't think the reaction from a partner to say oh, you know, this is laziness, that, that gut reaction is necessarily right. And for example, I talked to law students about this um, because I wasn't good at it. Like if you're, if you're good, if you're a good associate, um, and I think this generation does realize it, and I think it's actually for the most part a good thing. Um, I'd rather have a really super talented associate work on something that they're gonna do a good job on it and give me something great. Um, and if I want it by, you know, Monday and they say, hey, you know, my, my, it's my kid's graduation on that, that night and I really can't do it. 
Uh, I'd rather, you know, I, I can get it to you, you know, on Tuesday. That's better for me. I'd rather do that than like that. First of all, I'd rather, I'd rather that than two things. First, I'd rather like that than have someone who's maybe not as talented work twice as hard and get me something that I had to work long on. And I'd also rather not that person not tell me that, uh, work through their, their kid's graduation, give me the brief, and then a week later say, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, so I, I think it's important, but I also think it's important from the from that generation's perspective, and I can speak less to that because I'm not part of that generation, but to, to realize, you know, we are answering to clients, we are answering to partners, we do have deadlines, and to, you know, to see how we can communicate and work fast with them. And, and I think, I think you're, you know, at the beginning of the podcast, you talked about discussion and normalization. I think that that's a discussion that, that, that's part of the sort of the overarching need for conversation. Gina, not to give you more ideas for next year, but please do. Um, one of the things that struck me after Legal Week mm -hmm. um, in the fashion show <laughs> ALM put on as they took the podium, setting that aside, um, I was exhausted. And then I went to clock. And the comment from everybody was the same. We don't have our conference chops anymore. Our sort of interfacing stamina um, is depleted. And it wasn't just, it was, it, it, that was a really pervasive feeling that people hadn't seen each other. So it's going to be interesting next year as people attend more events and they're at the, they're at the firm more, and they're having more sort of acute um, interaction with more than one person. How they feel about that? Because that was a that was something. I remember my colleague and I got done with legal. We were like, "Wow, are we out of shape?" And and then you know, in in you know, just a few weeks ago, we were in Las Vegas, and we we're the, everybody was like, "This is great to see each other. It's amazing. It's exhausting." Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think no doubt. I mean, we forgot how to have like just casual conversations, right? I mean, that and let alone just figuring out what you're going to wear and get dressed again. <laughs> but that's that was extraordinarily stressful for me. Yeah, right. I mean, there's a lot that comes with you know having to be on, you know, and that's what those conferences are about. No doubt. I mean, I think part of that will solve itself as we get back into the swing of things. And I think people do crave, I mean, isolation is the biggest, one of the biggest issues in this industry, particularly, and that still is reflected in the survey. So I, I wouldn't want to say that we should take too much from staying apart and, and, and run with it. But I think, you know, maybe we rethink what, what that looks like, or the size of the groups, or what, you know, mm -hmm. How yeah. you engage and yeah. well, start those conversations. Because the one thing I took away from both events is that we're craving, even though it's exhausting right now, we are craving those events. Um, I think that's true. You know, it's interesting that, that you mentioned that, Mark, because um, you know we're not usually intentional about even thinking about that. I think you know if we hadn't gone away and now come back, we wouldn't even really think about it. But like it is exhausting and we are kind of learning to be in the world again. But I think it's interesting about communication. Yeah, we're used to, you know, life events and now now we've gotten used to doing a lot of things electronically by email and text and Slack and this platform and that platform. And we have a generation that's very used to texting and how I pick up tone. And I think this, you know, thinking about, you know, what what are the best ways to communicate and, you know, in, in a kind of fresh way, I think is a real opportunity. I agree, but I will say, you know, being back out, kind of reverting to some old behaviors, going to conferences, um, the energy when Legal Week opened and the energy when Clock opened and, and, and people were on the podium and, and, you know, letting letting the events begin was positively, you know, life affirming in a way. You felt like, hey, maybe... <laughs> maybe not everything's different. So it's gonna be really very interesting to see as we get back into some sense of normality and COVID sort of is managed as sort of a endemic running in the background um, always, how, um, how, how that, that impacts, because I think that that is a tonic. One thing that I, I took away from both events is we crave to see each other, maybe not every day, but we do crave to see our colleagues, our friends, our contacts and our community. And it's gonna be interesting to see how we navigate that. Before we close, do you have any closing comments or thoughts on the survey? You guys have been very gracious, especially because I was so addled 
in the days leading up to this um, um, and very, very patient <laughs> with my, um, my, my sort of scattered approach to the week. Nobody, nobody has to know about that. We can edit that right out. <laughs> I didn't even register with me. That's uh, my okay. everyday. <laughs> I just think, uh, no, I mean, that's, I think that's almost the takeaway, right? I mean, you know, you, you, uh, you know, being out of like juggling a million things, um, you know, the excitement of seeing people, right? We're hu like, we're human beings, like we're, we're social creatures. That's, you know, isolation is generally bad. And I know some people are more introverted and some are more extroverted and some are more comfortable generationally communicating by text. And some, if you're my kids, don't like when I comment on their Instagram pages and figure all that. But um, I, I think that is the takeaway. Like we've started this conversation, we have data, um, we, we, we have data that we can, you know, analyze and think about and act on and experiment with. Um, and for me, that, that's just really exciting. So I'm just happy to have the opportunity to think about it and, and talk about it together. Yeah. And I, I just, you know, if, if you followed our coverage or if you asked my team, they'll know that I am really focused on hard hitting business coverage of this industry. And I'm not going to sit and tell a law firm leader that that stuff needs to take a total backseat to all of this. I get that all of these things are very important, but it just, I don't know, the more I, I look at this data and I do these stories and I hear people's stories, I mean, we're, we're human. If the events of just even this last week have taught us nothing, I mean, it's just so important to remember what really matters and that we can be kind and empathetic and still run successful businesses. And yes, you don't, you know, nobody's blaming any organization or anything. We're just all in this together to try to make it a safe place for people to talk about this and to find solutions for all of us to just live happier lives, right? Because that's what it's all about. We're here for a really short time. And, and why not make that the priority and let everything else fall into place? I don't know, maybe that's a bit idealistic, but um, that's certainly the goal to keep to keep this at, at top of mind and, and feel like, you know what, this is time well spent to focus on this. Yeah, that's a great thought. And I just wanted to, to add, um, you know, I, I think we're um, positive and sort of optimistic, I'm, I'm optimistic by nature, but I also don't want to, um, you know, overshadow the fact that um, this is like a huge problem area. And I think that there's uh, there are some people who say, well, this is the way it's always been and therefore it's fine. And I just, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't confuse the fact that we have sustained this long uh, with concluding that, that, the, that the current and past kind of, uh, you know, terrible numbers on mental health and the law uh, is a sustainable uh, way of doing business because I don't think it is. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.